Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. And this is Robbie Martin. Hi, everybody. Hello. So, <laughs> something bad happened with our SoundCloud. We were trying to expand the platforms that Media Roots Radio is broadcasted on. And unfortunately, we registered with uh, something called Player FM. Robbie, is that what it was called? It's called Anchor FM. Oh, Anchor FM. Which is supposed to be, seems like it's a good service for people who are just starting out a podcast who want to take the lazy route and it's supposed to act as a front end to distribute your podcast to a bunch of other platforms but what ended up happening was i stupidly signed up for it without realizing that it wanted to become the main rss feed and basically what happened is it split all of our stats our listener stats into two places so you would only be able to see our listens on soundcloud as being half of what they were before and then you'd see the other half on this anchor fm front end so we freaked out and we were like, what the fuck? Like basically it appeared to set us back literally from the goal that we had, which is to expand <laughs> our audience and onto more platforms. So appreciate the, all the recommendations we've gotten for how to do that from different listeners. But I have a side eye for whoever <laughs> recommended Anchor <laughs> FM to us because it kind of fucked us up. And I don't recommend using it if you already have an established podcast. There's really no reason to use it. Um, even SoundCloud itself allows you to see all the the backend stats if you're signed in with all these other services. So from SoundCloud, you can actually see how many people are downloading and listening through iTunes and downloading and listening through Stitcher. Um, so SoundCloud already pretty much does all the things Anchor FM does. It just does it in a slightly less neat package. It's a little harder to navigate. Yeah, I had no so, idea that SoundCloud displayed that, and I wish I knew before because I guess the original intent was trying to figure out um, where the listens were coming from, how they're being distributed and how they can be shared and spread further. So yeah, good to know moving forward, but that's why if anyone looks at our SoundCloud page, our, our listens have drastically dropped. So give us some love, spread the podcast around. We're really proud of the last couple episodes and we're really stoked on all the feedback from you guys. That's what we thrive on. Let's get to some headlines really quickly. Ed Schultz has passed away at the young age of 64 was very shocking as someone who worked at RT for a long time. I never actually worked with Ed Schultz, but a lot of my colleagues and former colleagues who still work there did. And uh, it was pretty just sudden, you know. I think it was in his sleep. Um, he had had a heart attack not too long before this happened, but I didn't know him that well and I didn't really follow his career that well. But I think that the biggest takeaway is... People are saying that he was a really strong advocate for unions and workers' rights. And aside from that, just the fact that he went to Russia today, coming from such a premier position on MSNBC, and making that distinction that he was really given an incredible amount of editorial freedom at RT that he never had at mainstream media. So he, he's always been not as left as I, of course, would like, but... In hindsight, it just seems like I didn't give him enough credit for just taking that stand, especially in this climate of just hysterical anti-Russia fervor. So I really respect him for that. And I appreciate the work that he did at RT to try to normalize the network and, and put his voice out there and his perspective about why he was able to, to say things that he wasn't able to on corporate media. He claims that corporate media prevented him from talking about Bernie Sanders and the TPP, and that's eventually what drove him out. Well, there's a specific incident he describes where he was about to do a sit-down interview live with Bernie Sanders and his wife, 
stream like live through the network and then all of a sudden he got a message on his earpiece saying can't do it trump's about to do like a rally we're, sp- we're about to film an empty stage yeah waiting so they, for trump so, to come out so that was one of his wake-up moments was that oh this so supposedly liberal network i'm on would rather cover a donald trump another donald trump rally compared to me exclusively sitting down with like an actual presidential candidate who is very aligned with like apparently what are supposedly what our audience is supposed to be. So I have respect for him for that. I have to honestly say I wasn't particularly a fan of his politics, even since he was at air America, but now's not really the time to, you know, crap on his legacy. I think that what Abby just said is totally true that he, I mean, he really did stick his neck out. If you just isolate the fact that he moved to RT when he had a show at MSNBC and doing it in the middle of all this hysteria while all of his MSNBC colleagues probably hated him. Sometimes when you leave a network, you still keep in touch with your former colleagues at that workplace. But I highly doubt that he had any friendship or connection to any of those people at all. I mean, maybe, maybe some of the more friendly people there. They barely reported on him even getting a job there too. It was, Oh yeah. Totally yeah. ignored and minimized well, by I think all that of his they, former colleagues. Yeah, they would shit on RT all the time. And, you know, of course, RT became a, a subject of much contention on places like MSNBC. But you're right. They wouldn't mention, oh, and by the way, one of our former anchor, hosts is now working RT. You know, they would never mention that. It actually kind of almost seems like a conflict of interest. Like, because I remember Rachel Maddow mentioning during Fukushima that GE, who owns NBC, um, owned the reactor <laughs> like that was in Fukushima and she had she like used to say that at the end of every broadcast to him I don't know to make it more transparent in her mind or something um, but it was nice to see people like Chris Hayes giving him a nice eulogy um, a couple other people on MSNBC did but I was sort of waiting with bated breath to see what Rachel Maddow would say because they used to be colleagues on Air America together and she's the most virulent anti-Russian, like Russia-obsessed person. Um, and I actually missed that. So I don't know if she eulogized him, but the regular desk anchor who did um, at MSNBC did mention that he went to RT, Russian-owned media outlet RT, like at the end of it was the kind eulogy. Of in, yeah, it was kind of in passing with all yeah. these eulogies, but no one really talked about how it absolutely added credibility to the network just like larry king coming on board just like chris hedges coming on board there's a reason why people go to rt because they really do have kind of a limitless freedom editorially especially when you're at that position going to rt so except don't i mean just to clarify larry we don't we don't know if that's why larry king went to rt oh larry king just went to rt because he could do whatever the hell he wanted like that's what i mean including maybe continuing to sexually harass all the women around oh yeah no absolutely he'd probably get away with it more at rt than 100 (laughs) percent. but i guess larry king just went there because he literally knew that he could do whatever he wanted yeah he doesn't really have an ideology, mm-hmm. as we know. That's why he is in the position that he has been for his entire life. Do you know he has a book called I'm Having a Heart Attack by Larry King? No. He has like 25 books, and one of them, the entire book is about him having a heart attack. That's really weird. I mean, yeah, the, the weird weirdo. thing about Larry King is that he's actually really smart on certain things and really intuitive. Like, I've heard him interview people and have these long discussions where I'm like blown away. And then when it comes to politics, he's like the most centrist, like generic piece of shit ever yeah i remember when he sat down with me two interviews that i did one i interviewed him on breaking the set and i asked him about 
the war on whistleblowers that Obama was perpetrating. And he was like, what war on whistleblowers? What are you talking about? And I was just like, what do you mean? Um, and it seemed like he just was super out of touch about everything that was going on politically. And then another time I went on his show on RT and was interviewed by him. And he was like, why are you so angry walking around? He was like, everything's great. He's like, people are smiling. The sun, the sun is shining. <laughs> and I was just like, what in the hell are you talking about? I was like, you live in a fucking bubble, man. Like look around, <laughs> half of the country's living in poverty. It was just such a weird bubble, like liberal bubble elitist thing to say. Just be like, why are you so angry? And it was also like misogynist, you know? Being like, why are you such an angry bitch? Like you should smile more. <laughs> yeah, smile, it's like it's like Abby. telling a woman on the street, it's like the old man equivalent of saying, like, why don't you smile? Yeah. Like a stranger yep. is walking yep. on the street. I mean, speaking of strangers walking on the street, just really quickly in some updates of the um barbecue becky variety a man in uh virginia ran up to a guy wearing that had an afghanistan flag sticker on his car road raged him to pull over like he was like tailgating him basically so the guy would eventually pull over in anger and when the guy did he just started filming and the guy walked up to his car this old guy um you wearing like a pink work shirt uh with like a brand on it or something just started yelling at the guy, Afghanistan is a fucking bitch. Afghanistan is our bitch. Why they have that in this country? Get out of the country. And he, and he was like acting like he wanted the guy to get out of the car and fight him. And the guy refused to, just standing, in the, you know, sitting in his car. Um, but I really encourage people to try to dox these people who harass Muslims or people from like Middle Eastern countries who are basically colonizing right now. Um, and I'm still angry that that guy who called the woman said the woman Muslim woman in Starbucks looked like she was wearing a Halloween costume. Wearing in a cub. Yeah, I'm fucking angry that that guy hasn't been doxxed. The video of him is as clear as day. Why don't we dox that motherfucker? But I thought that he did get, I thought his job did get contacted. No, no? neither no. one of them. I followed, I mean, as far as I know, I followed up on those guys and nothing happened to them. And I still think, you know, as much as the mainstream media likes to pretend they're pro-Muslim rights and pro-like, you know, Arab American rights, I really think ultimately society does still marginalize Muslims m almost more than any other like racial minority or minority in the country. And I'm not trying to make any comparison between like the way people focus on certain, you know, racial discrimination, aspects of racial discrimination and other things. But like, it is notable that a HD video of a guy, you know, just another example, not a Muslim, but someone else who's very marginalized in society, a homeless person in Lake Merritt in Oakland having all of his stuff thrown into the trash and into the lake by like some white hipster, like jogger piece of shit who's just like, there's trash on the ground. I'm cleaning this up. And like all these people around him are like, that's not your stuff. What are you doing? Like you're literally ruining these only, like this person's literally their only possessions because you think it's trash and it's just like bothering you. And that guy didn't get doxxed and he's fine. And like, I, I guess my upsetness about this comes from the fact that our our ability to get collectively outraged about things is skewed a bit. I mean, the fact that Barbecue Becky was like everywhere, we knew everything about her so soon, it just bothers me that we don't know anything about these people. And I'm not necessarily saying we need more call-out culture, but it's like when it comes to like Muslims and homeless people, I feel like we do sort of need to get out the torches and pitchforks and be like, let's find these motherfuckers. And I, oh, and not even a guy throwing away a homeless person stuff. There was a video, a recording of like a look like a dot com motherfucker in San Francisco wearing a suit, physically kicking a homeless man laying on the ground in the stomach like twice. 
like beating the shit out of him and just walking away and no one says anything to him. There's video of him doing it. No one's found this guy. I mean, San Francisco is not that big, man. And what about the story that you told me about the club, the co-owner of the club that oh my was God, managed yeah. by Dave Chappelle here One in Oakland? One of Dave Chappelle's attempts to gentrify Oakland. And yeah, let's put it out there. Dave Chappelle, you know, acts like he's some kind of urban hero, but he did, op- he did open up a club in Oakland that's kind of a form of gentrification, I would argue. And one of the co either the co-owner or co-management of the club, who happens to be a white guy, um, it was discovered that he wrote a violent, threatening letter, and he placed it on near a homeless encampment, threatening to murder homeless people, because he said they were all junkies and they deserved to die. People online figured out who it was based on the wording. He actually posted a social media post using very similar language to his death threat letter, and he was and he was um, outed. And I unfortunately I don't have his name offhand, but yeah, I mean, I don't even what know. What was the club called? The New Parish mm. in Oakland, um, and it's you know it's an okay club, and you know it's one of those places where Dave Chappelle comes and he plays those like hundred fifty dollar a ticket, you know, only twelve hours in advance presale shows. There's like no announcement, but it just goes to show you that like hatred. And discrimination can come from any type of person, really. I mean, but I mean, honestly, most of these people are white. So <laughs> actually, it's not true. <laughs> every, every person I'm describing is like an angry, disgruntled white man. Yeah, so. it's like these Silicon Valley assholes come over to San Francisco and then they're like, you degenerate scum. And it's like, you're the reason why there's homeless people in San Francisco. Or like the, the exponential increase of homelessness. My friend is paying $2,500 for a small-ass bedroom in the Mission, sharing a house with four strangers. That's Silicon Valley, baby. That's, that's, that's the result of all of these industries moving in. And then these people have the audacity to actually, like, assault the poor and, and underprivileged people that are going to be expunged from their homes and kicked out of their areas as a result of these policies. So, again, a huge disconnect. Speaking of Afghanistan, really quickly... The Pentagon just had a hearing on Afghanistan, 17-year-long occupation, the endless war, and only four reporters bothered to show up to ask questions. Oh, how in, weird was that? That was, that was creepy. It was a, a very creepy photo. It was a totally empty room, all empty chairs, and just four people just meandering around. And that's because the U.S. Empire's longest war and continued decimation of the Middle East is not newsworthy anymore. No. At all. And, and all these liars fr- from the MAGA movement who say they're anti-war. Yeah, where are they? They all have press co- yeah, they all Yeah, have I press was just going to say, they, all, they all, all of a sudden went viral, got all this artificial signal boosting by God knows who. Billionaire right winger, fucking shadow money all over the goddamn place. And they all have press credentials now and, no, and they don't even show up there. So in reality, like we've been saying for forever, Abby, no one cares about Afghanistan. Even the anti, the, the whatever's left of the anti-war movement really doesn't either. Afghans are, you know, they're like subhuman and really in the eyes of most Westerners, I think, just like ISIS is. Mm-hmm. Like, remember, yeah. like, for like two years straight, I feel like the last real blast of news stories we got about Afghanistan, the Afghan people is how they all molest like boys. That was just like a narrative that constantly was like popping up in the media. And it's like U S soldiers were like, yeah, we got to stop all this kid fucking. It's like really bad. It's like, dude, like this is just straight up propaganda. I don't know. I just like, I just remember that mm-hmm. being like on vice and stuff like constantly hunting ISIS. <laughs> oh my vice. God. Yeah. If you haven't seen already watch hunting ISIS, one of the most <laughs> absurd vice shows ever. <laughs> Holy I, fuck. We just read this giant expose about vice talking about how 
Shane Smith just propped up kind of a fake projection of what Vice was and was able to manipulate all of these investors and project a fake um, worth, you know, and value of the company for so long. And it's going down now, kind of crashing and burning. But after he basically has sold it off and and walked away with, you know, as a multimillionaire. But it just reminded me also of how much editorial control Gavin McGinnis had. I, we really tend to forget that when we talk in in length about Vice and how horrible they are and how much they perpetuate U.S. foreign policy. I mean, Gavin McGinnis is the most mainstream dog shit conservative now. Like looking at his Twitter feed, it's like, dude, what the hell? Um, so to understand that he really was the primary generator of the entire Vice narrative, both domestically and internationally yeah. for up until I think like 10 years ago. And that was already when Vice was like propelled when Vice TV, you know. All the most influential stuff for me personally having to do with Vice was when Gavin was there because I remember it even like shaking up my sensibilities. Like, damn, this is like, you know, I was I was young and impressionable at the time. You know, I remember being like 20 years old when I read my first Vice magazine copy and thinking this is like too edgy in some ways for me, but it seems like it's like really try hard edgy. And it's very like, it just it just really rubbed me the wrong way, like right out of the gates. Like it did seem like it was trying to be kind of like 4chan culture in a way. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think people do really do underestimate the amount of influence people like Weave and Gavin McGinnis have had over our culture and that have tipped lots of young impressionable people into being like more right wing and racist. I really do think we underestimate that. Like how powerful even early internet culture was for that. Like the edgelord like internet culture. Like even go to a website like Something Awful, which used to be like a popular like, oh, have you been to that fucked up website, somethingawful.com? You go to that now and you're like, oh shit, I didn't remember how like racist this website was. Really edgy racist humor under the guise of humor, but it's like, was the guy who That's ran that website like a it. neo-Nazi? Right. I don't know if he was just like one of these edgelord guys. That's when it all becomes very murky. And then you realize, oh, wait, there are actual neo-Nazis who have been using these channels online as we've admitted to me in a Twitter thread that they propel racism using humor through stealth because they feel that more people would be able to become more racist if they do it through like joke form, which kind of pushes up against that idea of like these comedians doing these raunchy rate, you know, racially insensitive jokes. There is sort of a fine line between that. There are neo-Nazis who use that track to propel their own propaganda. Perfectly. Even though I'm like very pro free speech in that area. I think anybody should be able to make whatever jokes they want. I'm not as sensitive about those things and some other liberals are, but it still exists. Like you have to acknowledge that neo-Nazis have used this idea of like racist or racial humor to propel their own. That's the whole Kekistani exactly, exactly. Is just masking Nazism behind like a new rebranding that's like a joke. Well, even this, yeah. I was well, just the, talk the, about the Ron Paul cartoon, and they realize it t- require a ten minute fucking oh long God. discussion to break down oh, that the cartoon that he used was a mod of a Ben Garrison cartoon oh. done by like crazy like Nazi four channers, or were they joking? Were they trolling? It's like so, yeah. That was embarrassing. What a mess. If you don't know about that, Ron Paul tweeted a photo that was just really em- so embarrassing, so crushing for anyone who's still holding out hope um, for him. And um, 
that's all I'm really going to say about it. I was really, really disappointed to see that. Yeah, it was every racial stereotype in the worst way, just all packaged together in a big old cultural Marxism meme. Yeah, including <laughs> like the classic, the Jew right. propaganda face with like a Jewish guy with a giant yeah. nose, like with his hands together, yeah. like the, the yeah. grin. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh my mm-hmm. God. Yeah, it was nuts. But I was going to say one more quick thing about Vice. It's tricky for people, especially, you know, even when I was talking to Joe Rogan and explaining how... I disagree with Vice's editorial line, especially when it comes to U.S. foreign policy, because they essentially just echo the State Department. Um, and, you know, but but at the same time, this edgy culture is perplexing because people are like, well, they're so cutting edge when it comes to psychedelics and sex culture, sex yeah, they're positivity. So they're so left. Yeah, I hear people say that. That's what's super confusing. Yeah. They're so SJW, I hear people say still. So you're right. It is confusing. And I think that that, you know, if I... I can't prove this and it's pure speculation, but I mean, I've felt that Vice definitely had a deliberate propaganda slant, you know, fairly early on. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of that stuff was just sort of by design meant to make, you know, a spoonful of, um, spoonful of sugar helps the medicine medicine go go down. down. I mean, it's the same concept. It's like the psychedelics and the sex and the anal sex shit. I mean, I remember reading an article like five years ago where this, it was like an editorial from like a girl saying like the headline was something like, I love anal sex because I shit come or something like that. Oh my and I was just God. like, are you fucking kidding me? They're running this at the same time. They're literally whitewashing neo-Nazis in Ukraine. <laughs> like this is fascinating. Well, and then this you is look like at, textbook, yeah. like pro- people who study propaganda models need to be looking at vice like centuries from now. Right. It's groundbreaking propaganda. Yeah. And then you have Gavin McGinnis today spreading open his asshole on his webcam like several days in a row. It's just like, dude, who your audience is like 99% men. It's just a little bit odd. But yeah, basically just taking the vice sex positivity culture, but then also being like a crazy proud boy, racist American exceptionalist little bitch. Super edgy, dude. There's one th- points that I'll give to Gavin McGinnis is that he's going to outlast almost all these other guys because he's evolved before he's changed culture, arguably. And a lot of these other people, frankly, aren't as like charismatic and and just silly and off the wall as he is. So even if you know he does all this shit, I feel like in five years, eight years from now, he'll still be around, and some of these other people won't. Well, that's because he started off his career doing this. Yeah. It's like it's never yeah. that this has been a taboo thing that's going to take. I him mean, down. even the fact that the Proud Boys are like the main group now yeah. going out and fighting Antifa, like that's actually kind of impressive. That Spencer's alt right actual group, like the guys with the the suits and ties, the polo shirts. Those guys are kind of old news now. Cernovich doesn't have an army. None of these other people have like an army, but yeah, get the fact that Gavin McGinnis actually got the Proud Boys to like turn into a real thing. I mean, I don't know. Like, and I feel like people videos of them like beating up people yeah, all the time. I feel like a lot of people focus on the wrong figurehead sometimes, and they should be focusing more on people like him as having influence in this. Um, but yeah, I don't even know. Yeah. We, we we'll probably spent too much time talking about too much time. Should on we him. mention this last Silicon Valley thing about Elon Musk? Yeah, just really quickly. So uh, yeah, if you're if you're not already annoyed by how Elon Musk always finds a way to get headlines Trump style, like every single week, now he's in the headlines again for proposing to build a mini submarine to evacuate the Thai the Thai soccer team or Thai boys that were trapped in the cave. He got like three days worth of headlines over that. Um, if you're not annoyed enough by that already, maybe this will annoy you well, even more. Well, let me just say really quickly that it didn't even make sense on its face <laughs> because the the whole point of the escape route for the Thai boys 
was that there was a chamber in the tunnel or I'm sorry, in the cave that was only like two feet wide, which is why they had to actually take the everything off and just breathe up and be trained for like days by these professional scuba divers and stuff. So that's what made no sense. I mean, Elon Musk makes this chamber and it was like obviously bigger than that. It made no sense on its face and they measured it and it was like, wait, but this is bigger than the actual chamber that the kids are getting out of. That's the whole point. So it was just an ad for some kind of miniature submarine. He's just jerking off to weird. He's, I mean, I, I side with Ben. I think Ben is right. I have a friend who's like really involved in banking regrettably. Um, but he, he's been saying for years that he thinks Elon Musk is going to go like his company's going to go bankrupt and, it's all like a paper tiger and just like a, some weird PR stunt. And I kind of think he's right. I mean, it does seem like Elon Musk has finally gotten in the position where he is just getting all this free publicity constantly for really doing nothing, you know? Yeah, it's like I like the idea of the, I don't know if it's the maglev technology or whatever, the, the speed rail that he wants to build from LA to San Francisco. That, of course, is needed. It's been needed for decades. But he also has a really strange idea that's a very elitist idea of almost building an underground system in LA. No, not a public transportation system. No, not a subway system, but a private little like levels for rich people to be able to have like their own private Uber system that can go underground on like these little elevators and build tunnels throughout the city. It like cuts through like Sunset Boulevard and Malibu or something. Yeah. It's meant to circumvent the traffic jams in LA. And like the richest areas. It's just the weirdest thing. Um, and I think that that's his attempt, again, another PR stunt. But the controversial thing about that apparently is the permits to approve it were done like in this really odd fast track way where all these city council people and all these other like city officials are like, how did this even get approved? They're all like a lot of people are confused. So he's got some sort of weird pull. And you just, know, like it, maybe he managed to convince like Jerry Brown or people from California who are like hyper environmentalists. Like maybe he managed to tell them some kind of, you know, yeah. blow smoke up their ass about how this is re- going to be better for the environment. I don't, but it's like you're digging a tunnel such a, in such an unregulated way that can cause so much environmental damage in and of itself. Well, it's so. also, we need a subway. Uh, yeah, public transportation in LA yeah. is the worst in the country. Yes, we have a metro and I, people were like, I take public trans- transportation all the time. It's like, okay, well, that good for you. I actually live in a spot where I can't take public transportation to where I want to go. There is no really efficient way to go from the west to the mm-hmm. east side. And um, it is worth mentioning also that LA, as well as San Diego, as well as many other cities that are f- just... Um, extremely overpopulated today and overrun with cars and traffic and really debilitating to, to maneuver back in the day there were there were public transportation systems there were like trolleys set up you can see photos of actual just trolley cars and metro rails above ground just stacked up in like huge graveyards with all of the tracks just upended and stacked together in these giant pits because guess Crazy. what car manufacturers lobbied to remove them Wow. Yeah, the car lobby back in the day destroyed all the public transportation systems in many cities. And you also have to th- consider that, especially in cities like L.A. and Oakland and Bay Area, I mean, most of these public transportation systems were installed during or f- or the plans were made for them during the Jim Crow era. So, like, you have to factor that in, too. That, like, they were all, even the public transportation systems that are good and that exist, I mean... I don't know about New York. I'm sure someone has broken this down into like racial Jim Crow, you know, lines somehow. 
But like something like BART, I mean, it was obviously designed and mined for, you know, with like with segregation, soft segregation or whatever in mind. I mean, there's many areas you can only, you know, deliberately so, richer, wealthier areas you can only access by car. And then when you have things like exactly, Uber, exactly. Uber and Lyft, I mean, that's going to increase the wealth, the sort of the wealth gap and the privilege gap even more because then the rich and the more privileged, they don't even have to, they never even have to worry about public transportation because they're just like, oh, I could just call an Uber wherever. Yeah, exactly. That's so why BART doesn't run past a certain time. They wanted to keep the quote riffraff out from, mm -hmm. from Oakland to San Francisco. Anyways, we've been gone off on another crazy okay. tangent, but the, the Elon Musk thing is basically, it boils down to this. You know, he's always trying to get publicity, always trying to be part of internet culture. He's dating Grimes right now. He... He praised and complimented this guy who made like a meme image of a unicorn farting um, that looks like a little like Yoshi's Island style, like colored pencil drawing. It's meant to look like a little kid's drawing. It's a cute drawing of a unicorn farting. It kind of went viral a little bit. And then Elon Musk saw it and he, he made it way more viral because he's like, this is great. I love this. Like, this is what we need to power our cars. What happened was the guy was really excited by this. He got a bunch of merchandise sales off of Elon Musk, like retweeting his image, mugs, T-shirts, whatever. And then about a year later, um, the guy realized that Elon Musk was actually infringing on his copyright and using his actual image as an icon and description for some kind of software program in his new Tesla cars. So when you go into, a, I guess it's a Tesla Model S, the new ones, the new OS, one of the icons actually stole this guy's farting unicorn image for the icon. And he, I guess Elon Musk didn't ask for his permission, didn't offer him any money. And when the guy politely brought it up to him, like on Twitter, you can even look at the exchange, uh, Elon Musk says he should be grateful for getting the publicity that he's given him. So <laughs> it's just... Uh, just There's really fun. goes to show how bizarrely petty these people are. I mean, how much money would it have really costed Elon Musk to just like pay for the copyright to use this guy's image? I would have been so devastated if someone did that to me. Yeah, it could have been avoided by just giving people credit for who deserve it. Scott Pruitt resigned. He was replaced with a coal lobbyist, Andrew Wheeler, who also vows to continue to dismantle the EPA. So might as well, you know, just... The deck change, there's no real difference between them. These are both people whose life goal is to completely dismantle the institution that they're actually overseeing. I don't know why Scott Pruitt resigned, probably because he just had endless scandals coming out, talking about his ties to all these like energy lobbyists and uh -huh. oil people in D.C. He was like renting a room in an apartment owned by some like oil and gas guys. So he was just a complete nightmare. But yeah, Andrew Wheeler is no better. But um. Another thing that happened is Trump just keeps pardoning the worst human beings on the planet. Like Dinesh D'Souza, the guy who is just really gravitates toward the most dumbed down bottom of the barrel arguments for conservatives to latch on to. Like Nazis were the real leftists. Like the Democratic Party is who wanted to prevent the abolition of slavery. You know, like that mm -hmm. kind of, these kind of just ridiculously it's debunked distorted. tropes. Yeah, they're distorted hist historical revisionist narratives. And a lot of it actually seems somewhat based off of paleoconservative 
anti-liberal conspiracy talking points where they're like, even though some of them are kernels of truth, they're distortions of the truth to make it seem like the Democrats have always, or the left, you know, the general Mm -hmm. left has always been behind every bad thing that the country's ever seen. Yeah. It's like the KKK. Even racism. Yeah. Even KKK. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's a very fascinating narrative that has actually become quite viral in conservative communities, which used to be more of a fringy thing that you would only hear like militia people talk about back in the day. Um, and of course, Trump also pardoned the Bundy militia uh, to arse, people who were convicted of arson um, as part of that Bundy militia standoff. Um, if you really think about it, this is kind of like the who's who of this dog shit fringe conservative media outlet here. Don't heroes. forget Joe Arpaio. Yeah. Um, the sheriff who makes uh, his prisoners wear pink underpants and like sleep outside in tents in the scorching hot desert. I mean, this seems like he's just giving a green light to people like the Bundy militia to say, I got your back. And how scary is that? To kind of give, give a nod to these militia people that we're always talking about that InfoWars caters to. It's very, very much in line with something that I thought was like a more Steve Bannon influence part of the Trump presidency, mm-hmm, but now mm-hmm, appears mm-hmm. just to be that Trump is really plugged into this. That Trump is more savvy in this regard than maybe we give him credit for. You know? Yeah. I mean, even the talking points that they managed to spin about like Maxine Waters and, you know, Nancy Pelosi, MS-13, the red hen thing, they're really firing on all cylinders on trying to victimize themselves and increase the polarized divide. And that's weird that they're trying to do that. It's actually surprising in a way that there aren't any conspiracy theorists who are like, there is a plot, like a psyop plot being done right now by the Trump administration and the deep state or whatever to try to like cause a civil war or divide the country even more. Because it seems like that is, I mean, like, I'm not saying that that's the case, but it does seem like that's the direction they're going. And then Trump administration deliberately trying to widen that divide at every opportunity, even just by these pardons. Well, the Dinesh D'Souza thing and the Bundy thing and the Joe Arpaio thing, I think were all nods to their bases because they all have huge fringe bases of people that Trump really wants to like let them know that he supports them. And that's the most dangerous thing to me because all of their bases are just completely insane. Um, I'm no, I'm no friend of anyone that's a fan of Joe Arpaio, including, uh, Malcolm Alex in the Jones. middle. Malcolm in the middle is yeah, a fan dude. of Europe. Wait, like the main character, Malcolm? Yes. Oh, no. Yeah, sorry, Malcolm. Well, Alex Jones is like a huge fan of him now, too. Oh, I'm not sure. I mean, Alex Jones was saying that the Civil War was coming on the 4th. Mm-hmm. That was a hilarious meme going on. But I just cannot get over what a fraud D'Souza is. Wasn't he even indicted because he some like fraudulent money stuff that I don't he had know the details on. of that yeah. case no but he claims of course and all of his supporters believe that it was a vindictive setup by the Obama administration it's to get him to like repent God. and recant everything he even claims he tried to get they tried to brainwash him in prison to like recant everything he said about Obama and he's recant made it, the fact yeah. that Nazis are the almost real almost like 1984 leftists. like shining lights in your face like <laughs> say, Ob- say Obama's not a Muslim or whatever <laughs> like I don't know what the fuck he's claiming he is just the worst human being in the world people who are historians have just been eviscerating all of his arguments over the past couple of weeks on Twitter because he keeps saying these insanely easily debunked things about immigration and just everything. I mean, everything he says is easily debunked, but that's his audience is not critical thinkers. I mean, they're just they just hear him say 
Hitler ran a party called the National Socialists, and they're like, oh my God, socialists are Nazis. Of course, it's such, I mean, and this should go to show that it no longer matters what the actual truth is. It just matters yeah. who can just who can come up with the most convincing, visceral narrative. Trumpian to, to propel the propaganda, and it's not populism like all these people are claiming it is. It's something different. It's something more reptile brain based. There is no more. Re- there's no reason anymore to use the rule book and be like we're intellectuals. Yeah, we're smarter than you know we used to be. We we're operating in a more sophisticated area now. No, we've always been a fucking mob mentality, reptile brain driven, um, bloodthirsty like pop like society population. I mean, just human beings in general. I'm not even talking about Americans. So it just makes total sense. Like when once you lift all that away, and you're just like, oh, it doesn't matter anymore. If we we don't even have to care about telling the truth. No, these people aren't telling the truth. So why should we? We should just play fight harder. And faster and stronger than they do. You mean you don't just want to go punching high? and counterpunching every single time, no matter what happens, constantly. That's the Roy Cohen um, philosophy. Roy Cohen was Trump's mentor. This is all you can read about Roy Cohen. I mean, Roy Cohen is also McCarthy's lawyer. This strategy goes back decades and decades. I mean, probably throughout human history. I know? thought that when they go low, we just go high. <laughs> no? I mean, that doesn't work. That's that's what everybody used to think. I mean, and apparently that's civility. what people still think. Civility. Return to civility. Yeah, I mean, there's really no way to... That's what people need to realize, is there isn't any way to actually elevate things anymore. Even if you had an admirable, like, reason or... I mean, if even if you really wanted to do that for good reasons, there's no, I don't think it's possible anymore. I couldn't agree more. I wanted to say something really quickly about the election because someone brought this to my attention and we've we've talked at length about why Trump won and all the problems with Hillary, of course, but I think it's really worth mentioning when the whole Jill Stein Green Party argument that they siphon votes and that, you know, the swing states were overtaken by the minutia of the Green Party vote, which really split those states, what they never talk about And a guy named W. Chanley on Twitter, at W. Chanley, put together all of the data of the exit polls from those swing states. And actually, guess who swung the election for Trump? Registered Democrats. 9% of registered Democrats in Michigan voted for Trump. 7% in Wisconsin voted for Trump. And the kicker is 11% of registered Democrats in Pennsylvania voted for Trump. Holy shit. So where is that argument when you hear Neera Tandon and all these people blaming Susan Sarandon? It's like, why don't you look at your own party and maybe point the finger to that whole strategy of garnering Republican and moderate and center-right votes from the Democratic Party? Well, guess what? It worked in droves. It worked so well that they actually knee-jerked over to voting for Trump. Good job, guys. Good job. Yeah, it's an incredible statistic. And I just, this is what I'm going to say to everyone who who says I cost the election. Someone else just blamed me today. They're like, thanks, Abby, for helping Trump win. Uh, and I just said, yeah, don't blame the actual Democrats. You know, don't blame the media for basically telling the entire country 100% across the board that Trump had zero chance of winning. Of course, I would have talked about Trump more. I thought that Hillary was going to win. I couldn't believe it, but I was like, well, I guess all the information is coming from somewhere. I guess that there's credible people putting together these polls and realizing that, yeah, Trump has no chance of winning. But of course, no one wants to talk about the complicity of why the media actually was so arrogant in that assumption. 
that Trump had zero chance of winning. So why would we even consider hammering over and over and over again on Trump? Obviously, we would focus on the Democratic candidate who, according to the mainstream media, had a 100 percent chance to win because we wanted to hit the ground running when she won. Because that was the biggest problem with the Obama presidency is the weakness of the Democrats by just letting him do nothing for the the first two years when he had total control of both houses. Yeah, I mean, completely agree with you. It's just the concept of vote shaming is just so, it's just so wrong. I mean, I wouldn't even, I don't even think we spent any time like telling, you know, criticizing people who even voted for Trump. That's just not our thing. And it yeah. shouldn't, it just shouldn't be anyone's thing because obviously the Democratic Party is doing it because they're, they're not actually threatened by the amount of votes that are taken away from people like Hillary Clinton. They're threatened by the, what will happen if they don't try to suppress it because then those candidates will have the chance to bloom and become more popular. So they need to like act like it's the worst thing ever, that Jill Stein is a Russian agent, that she took away all these votes from Hillary, that Ralph Nader cost... Uh, gore the election. They need to put out these narratives because otherwise people would be more curious about these people. So they now they have a built-in narrative walking in. Oh, that's that guy that cost us the election, Ralph Nader. Oh, that's how I know of him. That motherfucker. Like that's the almost like the default for a lot of people like exploring these other people now. And I think that's the purpose of it. They don't. They know it's not really threatening to their like action. Like in a literal sense, the votes like for the next election. They're threatened by the viral success of an actual third party candidate. Yeah, the actual populist. Like someone like Ralph Nader is still rejected. I even saw people in our circles and broader circles actually hammering on Ralph Nader today saying, have you ever apologized for the 2000 election? These people will still blame Ralph Nader and still despise him for quote unquote, costing us the election, even the Supreme Court, this dictatorial body, which we'll talk about later, actually did that and the Electoral College. But what's funny is that these people embrace Bush. They actually embrace Bush, but they still blame Nader for for the situation that we're in. But but they'll just lay down and be like, I miss Bush, but fuck you, Nader. Apologize. It's such bullshit. I mean, yeah. Does that really say it all? It does say it all. And and then we're still squabbling about this wall while we have a totally insane, unhinged president still in office. Yeah, stacking I mean, all of these courts for lifetime appointments. We're just getting weirder and crazier and, and arguably more more unhinged. Yeah. Which one should I play first? I mean, this Montana rally that he did was... Yeah, which so, is so bizarre. I mean, it, so first explain what Trump's he, Trump is going on campaign rallies across the country. I don't know how this is legal. There's so many things I don't understand how how it's legal. The, the emoluments clause is violated every other day. Uh, Trump is just enriching his personal fortune and his family wealth day to day. It's just so blatant and obvious. I don't understand why people aren't hammering home on that. But aside from that, he's not only at Mar-a-Lago every every other day golfing or on Twitter with these long tirades, he's doing campaign rallies in all of these cities, which I, I guess I'm just confused because I've never seen anyone do that before as they're mm-hmm. a sitting president. If they have, I'm not aware of it. Usually when Obama and Clinton and Bush would go out and do that, it would be an unveiling of something. It would be to endorse a, like a senatorial candidate. It would, they would always be for specific reasons. But you're right that Trump is, this seems unprecedented that he's just doing these 
things that are exactly like these campaign rallies, you could sort of understand when you watch them. I've tried watching some of them. They're most, for the most part, very boring. But then he'll get in these sort of these weird, on these weird roles where you can really see that he is just loving it. Like a lot of people who say, oh, he hates being president. He regrets it. He loves it. He, this, I mean, he seems like he is having the time of his fucking life. This clip where he talks about how he's like Elton John. Um, let's check it out. It's, yeah, it's really, really surreal. So let's listen to this from his rally um, on July 5th in Montana. The new platform of the Democrat Party. And by the way, I call it the Democrat Party. It sounds better rhetorically. You know, I wrote bestsellers. I, I guess I speak well. You know, we turned away thousands of people. They never say I'm a great speaker. Why the hell do so many people come? Why do so I don't think it's true. Why do they come? Why? He's turning around now, looking at the audience, like for a, almost like 20 seconds, nodding his head, like, oh my God, I'm so loved. Why do they come? Why do you guys come? We love like you. Policy. Maybe you like policy. We love no, you, sir. Trump. Have you ever noticed? You never hear that. You never hear that. You never hear it. I mean, there's got to be a reason. I have broken more Elton John records. He seems to have a lot of records. And we beat, and I, by the way, I don't have a musical instrument. I don't have a guitar or an organ. No organ. Why are people laughing? Elton has an organ. They don't even know what to say. And lots of other people helping. No, we've broken a lot of records. We've broken virtually every record. (laughs) I only need this space. They need much more room. My God. For basketball, for hockey, for all the sports, they need a lot of room. We don't need it. We have people in that space. My God. So we break all these records. But really, we do it without, like, the musical instruments. <laughs> the musical, the mouth. It's, and hopefully the brain attached to the mouth. <laughs> the brain, more important than the mouth, is the brain. The brain is much more important. Oh, put, a, put two in the brain. It sounds like he's, like, in a zombie movie or something. Wait, what's so... <laughs> What's so funny about this is it almost seems like if your phone just auto-corrected every next word that it would make more sense than what he just said. The best part is he starts it out saying, we've broken Elton John records. Yeah, I thought he meant like, like it, crushing it, them, like, like actually breaking them physically. Is he meaning that he's broken Elton John's records? Like in terms of what metric? Like rec- like sale, music sale? <laughs> it was just so such a bizarre way to start. It did seem fully improvised. But he was loving it. The crowd was absolutely loving it, eating every word up. I mean, that was complete nonsense. So that's kind of scary. He really, I mean, imagine if there was a real war going on right now and he was having that kind of like orgasmic uh, adrenaline Trump energy on stage. Like what kind of shit would he be saying? It'd probably just be like nonsensical stuff about whatever enemy we're fighting but while people are dying, I just can't, I mean, I just don't even want to think about how weird it would be <laughs> I'm predicting a dystopia, but I still feel like uh, we're still in for a wild ride. I don't feel like this is the last of like the worst of what Trump is capable of. I mean, I think it's going to get worse still. Yeah, that's scary. It's a scary thought. Let's check out the Elizabeth Warren clip. Yeah, so this is from the same rally. Same rally? 
Same rally, I believe. Let's see. Hold on. Let me just make sure. Wow. He was on a roll. And you have to watch these clips to really get the full effect of them because he his body language is very intense. Yeah, because I almost read... I read it. Well, I did read yeah. it before I saw it, and reading it was actually less surreal. You would think that reading the text would be more crazy because you actually could see what he's saying, but no, watching it is certainly crazier. Let's say I'm debating Pocahontas, right? I promise Moving you his hands all wildly. I will take, you know those little kits they sell on television for $2? Okay. We will take that little kit and say, but we have to do it gently. Because we're in the Me Too generation, so we have to be very gentle. And we will very gently take that kit and we will slowly toss it, hoping it doesn't hit her and injure her. It's like he's doing and a stand-up say, comedy routine. I will give you a million dollars. To your favorite charity, paid for by Trump, if you take the test and it shows you're an Indian. It shows you Indian, you know? So, oh my God. You that's know not what? even the really full quickly, clip. That is going to take her down single-handedly if she does run against Trump and oh, it's just course. him and her. All he can say is, you lied about being a Native American and she's not going to be able to take the DNA test. It's like, it's such genius pre-prog. Yeah, it's such... <laughs> It's such reptile brain, but also such genius, just not giving a shit. Playing for the cheap seats just such a in such a naked and shameless way that it doesn't matter because it's effective. I mean, that's what's that's what people need to see. I feel like people still aren't getting it. Yeah, she would get destroyed if she ran against him. That's what's so still so weird about it. Nobody can come out effectively against Trump yet. He's he's impenetrable, and I hate giving him that kind of credit. It's it's fascinating because he he goes to the kernels of truth, and that he could just hammer on that point so much, and it's just all the red meat that his base needs to discredit her. It's very sad. Not that I love Elizabeth Warren, but it's just like damn, it's crazy to just have her her entire ideology boiled down to the fact that she's not really Native American. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of the doing the panel of Bill Clinton's rape victims, like right before the debate with Hillary Clinton. That was the craziest It's thing just ever such seen. an extreme move to throw Hillary Clinton off that, but it, you know, maybe it was really effective. Maybe she was really thrown off by that. That's when I knew that shit was going to get really weird. And he was like stalking her. Remember he was like standing behind her, like huffing. I mean, that was a, that was so an extreme crazy. moment. I watched yeah, it on a was. terrible plane flight too, live. Yeah. And it made it even more intense. That was a really extreme uh, moment for me. I guess I was going to talk about Rudy a little bit, but there's really not much to say about him other than he's been going on TV constantly still, seemingly as the new spokesperson and propagandist running interference for Trump. And it doesn't just seem like he's just on his legal team to just help him devise a legal strategy. It seems like right now he's just acting as his like TV spokesperson. I mean, as far as any other Trump official, there hasn't been anybody getting this much media time recently. So it's, it's just odd still because he's not very good on TV. He seems very shifty. He seems shady. Uh, the media is just you know constantly grilling him on these things. This is from uh, Farron Cousins of Ring of Fire. Uh, quote, Michael Cohen has hired a new lawyer, Lanny Davis, and Davis already appears tired of the games being played by Trump and his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. Davis took to Twitter in response to Giuliani's, Giuliani's recent media parade to warn him that he and Trump have no idea what truth even means and that they need to stay tuned. 
So Farron speculates that Davis might be working on a plea deal with Cohen. And Lanny Davis is an old Clinton lawyer. So that is sort of an interesting twist. So we'll have to see how that plays out. Because this, I mean, this could either be it for Trump. You know, he can get himself in some kind of perjury trap as his defense team thinks is that's what it's all set up to do. Um, or something could come out through Cohen. Or it could just be a wash and Mueller ends up not really finding anything to take Trump down. Well, so far, so bad. Yeah. I did want to mention really quickly before we move on about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the DSA woman, the 28-year-old woman who basically totally caused a huge upset in the Democratic primary against Joe Crowley, who was a veteran party operative, a 10-term incumbent, and the fourth-ranking Democrat in the House poised to replace Nancy Pelosi. So, you know, everyone has their own take on this. I think it's great that, of course, we have one other person in a, you know, a sea of hundreds of people who are total, just have shit politics and are super right wing. It's great that we have one person fighting for universal health care and things like that. Um, I don't know what impact it's going to make. I think just the fact that it's just like put the fear in the hearts of all these establishment Democrats is really exciting. But of course, you immediately saw them just co-opt it and say they've, they've always been for her like they, yeah, they're embracing the new change in the Democratic Party. Tom they Perez. love her policies. It's really funny because Tom Perez, speaking of Tom Perez, he was confronted by by Amy Goodman at the family separation rally because, of course, the Democrats immediately co-opted that and did, you know, billions of dollars were behind that effort to stage these rallies all across the country. And Tom Perez was there because he was just really upset. Robbie was really upset about the family <laughs> separation. And Amy Goodman asked him about Cortez's win. And he was like... He was like, of course we support her. She's a Democrat. And she was like, but she wants to abolish ICE and she wants universal health care. And she's like, do you support that? And then he just like started to walk away from her. It was wow. very silly. Wow. Yeah, it was hilarious. He couldn't even handle it. Yeah, I couldn't Goodman. handle it. Wow, that's funny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That really says it all about the Democratic Party. I mean, if you don't have... You would already think that they have like they bothered to come up with a field manual of how to deal with Amy Goodman or something. Because if they haven't even come up with that, it just shows how little they actually give a shit. Have some plans to deal with these really important issues. They're just, I mean, they literally don't want to ignore them. Yeah. So it's been funny to see the split in the Democratic Party of how to treat this win. You know, it's either they're co opting it and embracing her with open arms or they're kind of poo-pooing it and minimizing it. Like Rachel Maddow was very insulting to me the night that she won or the next night, rather Chris Hayes had her on and gave her only like a two minute, really short cursory interview that did not get in any substance whatsoever about her policies. And then after that, you know, he teases to the next show. So Rachel Maddow comes on and she's like, I am really impressed with how she can speak. She was just like, wow, she, uh, Really good speaker. Like, just said something like, why? Because she's like a young Mexican woman that you're like, wow. You know, like people say that about yeah, like black yeah, people yeah, when they're like eloquent and they're like, oh, wow. Like, I'm really impressed with like how intelligent they are. It's like, why? God, Rachel Maddow is it so out of really touch. It was really offensive and frankly racist. And just the whole thing was just really weird. And then Rachel Maddow just basically never mentioned her again. Of course. Yeah. I mean, and even that, those tears, those Rachel Maddow oh, tears live please. on ear, that seemed really weird to me. To be honest, and you don't mean to sound like, you know, right winger. I mean, I think, I don't know who else said that there were crocodile tears, but it did seem really kind of like fake to me. Rachel Maddow is, seems really phony. And yeah, uh, I just cannot fake. believe this is how she wants her legacy to be. Is just like constantly talking about Russia, being a shill for the Democratic Party. It's really sad. And Alan Dershowitz just said, if there's one thing 
a message to Democrats, don't vote for Cynthia Nixon. So I guess that should be an endorsement for everyone who doesn't want a piece of shit like Alan Dershowitz to have any say or influence whatsoever over policy. Everyone in the Democratic primary contest against Cuomo in New York, please vote for Cynthia Nixon. Cuomo is a is terrible. He actually admitted that he accepted donations from Trump. Which oh, yeah. Is super weird. And he was like, someone confronted him and they're like, well, wh- what are you like? What are these donations going to mean? And he was like, nothing. He's like, I'm going to completely hold Trump's feet to the fire. He's like, the donations aren't going to affect me at all. He's like, well, why did you accept donations from Trump? Mm-hmm. And when did he accept them? I don't know. That's what's so interesting about this. Is Trump allowed to make political campaign contributions while he's president? Is that legal? These are all these new things that these questions aren't being asked enough. We're forgetting that Trump is a billionaire, apparently. So how much influence does he have just through his own money and investments right now? And, and the way that, you know, different corporations treat the American government. I want to know how that works. Yeah. So first we learned that the Koch brothers gave more money to Cuomo than basically Scott Walker. I mean, think about that. This is Scott Walker who basically abolished unions in Wisconsin total Koch brothers shill. And the Koch brothers gave more money to Cuomo than him. I mean, that says a lot. So-called Democratic governor running allegedly the most progressive state in the country. It's just disgusting. So Trump gave him $64,000. And this is another notorious union buster. And ever since Cynthia Nixon announced her campaign, everything that he's done is kind of poised like to be more left than he really is. Like he wanted to give felons the right to vote and stuff. He's just like putting out there all these kind of radical notions to try to counter her uh-huh. clearly radical left ideology that's harnessing a lot of energy in New York right now. So it's just amazing what these people do. They never learn. But unfortunately, New York is full of old money, full of bank money. It's going to be hard to get someone like Cynthia Nixon really elected. I think that Ortez's victory was a slight aberration in the political electoral system that we have. Of course it was, because uh, it's so difficult to elect someone who is even a so-called socialist or proclaimed socialist that um, that I don't think that we're going to see it replicate across the country. I think it was kind of a unique thing, even though I I don't want to be a pessimist, but I just think that obviously the system that we have locks out those voices for a reason and makes them extremely hard to win. And I think the Democrats didn't take her seriously, but now that she is going to win probably because it's such a democratic hub, um, I think that they're going to try to prevent this duplication across the country. Oh, I think so too. I mean, they're acting like they're about to embrace it, ready to help change the Democratic Party from the inside, you know, on one, out one side of their mouth and then running away from Amy Goodman for asking just like really basic questions on the other, from the other side of their mouth. So they don't have any plans to actually change their platforms. I mean, there's even rumors right now, again, and there's actual headlines. I don't know where they're getting this from, but the New York Post said that Hillary is considering running oh, 2020. Um, so... It's just, yeah, it's really disturbing. I don't know if you saw this, but there was other people when she won a bunch of like a resistance o- people. I'm sorry, Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah, a bunch of resistance people who didn't know what the party line was going to be at first. Well, it was just the thing that was creepy to me, kind of what you were saying in the last podcast, how where does this manufactured coverage come from when all of a sudden lockstep, like all the outlets are on board? Mm-hmm. And it seemed like MSNBC specifically was just 100% like all focused on her. Uh-huh. 
you know, and bo- signal boosting her immediately. It was like they all just had a note where they were like, okay, we need to pay attention or otherwise we're not going to be taken seriously. I don't know. But then it just faltered really quickly. But I just thought that was really interesting. It's like, wow, you guys really did not cover her at all. And you've mocked all of her ideas and also just, you know, marginalized Bernie Sanders for the longest time. So please don't like front like somehow you're impressed or you give a shit about anything that she's saying. It was just really, really telling. Yeah, it was just really, really telling. But I hope that she can, I hope that she really sparks a lot of, uh, action and I hope people really come out in droves to support people like her again I don't think ultimately the answer is working within the Democratic Party but you know you can't not be excited when someone that young and energized and really in tune with radical politics gets in especially attached to the term socialist there have been very few so-called socialist candidates ever elected uh, in the history of our country so especially with just the unofficial religion being anti-communism for the last hundred plus years in this country. So that alone, I think, is something really monumental, symbolically, if nothing else. Yeah, so after her victory, of course, sites like Infowars, Breitbart, Gateway Pundit, Daily Caller, all these garbage conservative sites that just regurgitate the most nonsense kind of Dinesh D'Souza talking points, leapt on her victory by saying... This is what it said. Infowars claiming that DSA candidate is full communism and that full communism means total corporate control. There's like several layers of just complete disingenuity. Here. Yeah. The fact that they think communism means corporate control. It's literally the opposite. It means workers taking over industry and nationalizing them and having like zero corporate control. And then it's just also funny that they said that she is a communist when she's clearly not. There's a huge difference between full communism and democratic socialism. Well, of course there is. But I mean, if you remember back to when Obama got elected, um, people were trying to say that all of his policies that were remotely, like even the hint of socialism, the Obamacare plan was hmm. communist. Even though it was a heritage yeah, foundation yeah. incubated in the heritage foundation. I mean, Sean Hannity really did a good job of getting that narrative to like soak into the right wing populace that anything remotely socialist is communist. But there are, there is some weird stuff that I'm still curious about, like that Obama did like seem like he was into Marxism, like back when he was in college and shit. So I could see how the right wing used that to make it appear that his policies were going to be that somehow, like in this crazy, distorted it's way. It's so weird, though, because that's like but, what Bill Crystal, Irving Crystal well, and stuff Well, Irving Crystal too. was a Trotsky. That's guy. super yeah. weird. I mean, but, and and he was like Bill uh, Irving Crystal at one time said he was like a neo-Marxist and all this stuff. Like, so that's what pisses me off the most, though, is like the, it, it fits into that whole mantra where you're like, oh, you're just young and dumb. Everyone's a young, dumb Marxist when they're in college. And then you grow out of it and become a neoconservative. That's the true ideology. It's just Mm -hmm. like, what? Like, I'm I'm becoming more Marxist over time because I, like, didn't know what the fuck I was talking about 10 years ago. So anyway, it's just weird that because people like Irving Kristol used to be, quote unquote, Marxist, that they're able to say, like, yeah, no, I used to be that. And now I'm smarter. Mm -hmm. It's like the original Dave Rubin. (laughs) The OG (laughs) Dave Rubin. Yeah. Trump had some more 4D chess uh, by misspelling some words, uh, saying pour over. And he actually used the word P-O-U-R instead of P-O-R-E. And Ben Shapiro being the little mindless bootlicker actually just proudly proclaimed that this is A plus trolling. 
He was like, there is 0% chance that Trump does not know the difference between pour over and pour over. He was like, A plus trolling. That was really embarrassing. Yeah, I Mortifying, saw that. Mortifying, actually. I'm, I'm confused. I thought people like Ben Shapiro were like against Trump and he was making conservatives look bad. Are they now like on board with Trump? People, so, so I mocked him for this. I love mocking Ben Shapiro because I know he just really probably hates my anti-Israel stuff since he's such a little piece of shit. I mean, he even said like settlements rock. He was like, you can, you know, choose which side of the conflict by seeing like who loves just living in mud and grime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was like, and settlements fucking rock, dude. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I mean, he's he he claimed he was like a never Trumper, but he's just like slowly embraced all of Trump's worst policies, even though he has like a Trump good and Trump bad on his podcast. That's what people responded to me. They're like, oh, you think that Ben Shapiro loves Trump? They're like, he criticizes him on his podcast by saying the bad things he's doing. It's like, okay, well, when he says shit like this and actually says that Trump is trolling everyone by spelling things wrong, being really dumb, um, he's an idiot. So of course he's going to love all the horrible shit Trump's doing. He probably doesn't just like like the uncouth nature of the way he's doing it. It's not like valid criticism. Sorry. That's the same criticism that David Frum has. Yeah, it reminds me of how everyone thought he meant some kind of coded message with Kofifi in that tweet. I mean, it's in in a similar vein. Like everything Trump does is 4D chess. Everything he does is deliberate. It's it's a strange thing. Yeah. Another story that I read that reminded me just of how devastating the refugee crisis is. Hundreds of refugees fleeing slavery and war in Libya, drowned in recent weeks from capsized boats in the Mediterranean. 1,000 have died in 2018 so far. And governments across Europe, because of this anti-immigrant rhetoric that's taking off, and because of the influx of refugees, Trump-esque figures are being elected all over Europe, of course, who, who are promising to lock down their borders and expel immigrants and refugees and block these, these rescue missions and migrant boats from coming and even going on shore. And so Italy, um, the new Italian government has intensified these, these efforts um, they've said that they've taken more than their fair share, and many of them that are heading to Italy, which is one of the closest points in Europe to their starting point in Libya, have been diverted and mister, you know, redirected away to other European countries, and several of those boats have capsized. Um, hundreds of people are dying every week. There's just capsized boats of all of these people fleeing a war that we fucking did. Libya is a just total state in ruin. It's a failed state. ISIS has taken over. There's slave markets. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that the perpetrators of these crimes, the perpetrators of the NATO bombing campaign have a right and a duty to provide not only aid, but like reconstruction efforts and refuge for these people. So again, going back to the argument that we need to somehow make a link between the migrant refugee crisis and immigration crisis back to the foreign policy of the U.S. government and also like its proxy empire alleys around the world. And I just don't know why that's not being done more. And all of these anti-immigrant bigots who just revel in the fact that migrants are just like drowning, like Lauren Southern, who just did this absurd agitprop documentary, probably funded by like another right-wing billionaire, essentially calling for apartheid again in South Africa. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, someone did a really good Twitter thread, Mm -hmm. watched the whole thing and Mm -hmm. broke it down and it just it just really does make you wonder. I mean, again, like I hate bringing it always back to this, but who are these people being funded by and who is really running this agenda? Because all these people just randomly popped up. 
these suspiciously viral characters, I don't believe for a second that they're just organically successful, like independent, quote unquote, journalists. You're calling for apartheid. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I saw Cernovich and a bunch of other people pretending like there's all these white farmers that now like all these white people are in danger in South Africa. No, crime is a huge problem there. Um, And no, it's not that white farmers are being like disproportionately affected by crime. It's a made up, just completely fake victim, victim narrative that's just like pushing racist policies again. It's white people being upset that they lost the apartheid control over South Africa and they're trying to reinstate it. Well, it just keeps played into this. It's like conservatives have shifted now and with the help of WikiLeaks, mind you. And let's let's move to that in a second, this vigil. But they have shifted from domestic immigration shaming and marginalization and scapegoating to on a global scale. So they can translate that narrative that was existed when we were younger, that was always driving like American domestic politics, the right wing politics to like the global stage. It's a problem everywhere now. South Africa, Europe, every civilized place in the world is having these like mass immigration, illegal immigration problems, terrorists. Uh, and they're always, you know, either black, they're never white people, you know, that are the yeah. problem. It's always black immigrants for the most part or Arab immigrants. It's a very convenient narrative for them. It goes along perfectly with, you know, these supposed ISIS attacks that are happening every so often. So again, I think it is a smart strategy on their part to just keep creating this divide. It's it's like a scapegoat that never ends because they can just go to any obscure part of the world that, you know, we it's like impossible. Like Americans don't follow anything in South Africa. So every right winger who watches mm-hmm. that is just going to mm-hmm. automatically believe everything she says. Yeah. And you cherry pick statistics and you just hone in on these Breitbart style tactics like, you know, one refugee raped a girl. Therefore, all the refugees in this country are criminals. And it's just unreal. And I think it's worth mentioning again that Anne Frank, you know, everyone loves to talk about how the Holocaust is the most important thing in the world and how could this ever happen and never again. And well, it's worth mentioning that Anne Frank the Dutch Jewish girl who became argu- arguably the most famous victim of the Holocaust tried to escape to the U.S. Tried to escape to the U.S., but they were foiled by America's slow-moving and restrictive immigration policies. Her father, Otto, tried to secure application papers for American visas twice before his family retreated to their attic hideout. Very, very sad. He even wrote to a friend saying, I am forced to look out for immigration as, and as far as I can see, the U.S. is the only country we could go to. So in hindsight, I'm sure people are really upset about that and being like, oh, my God, how could this happen? Well, we're doing this today. It's just that these people aren't white. So, I mean, again, it's just like the Japanese internment stuff. It's like, wow, you look back in shock and you're like, how could this happen? It's like we're doing it with like immigrants now. <laughs> like similar facilities being set up for immigrants. It's like, yeah, I mean, they're not American citizens, but they're and they're not white. So therefore, I guess it's different in people's minds really strange you know and wikileaks uh, official twitter account was I, I mentioned earlier was kind of egging some of these immigrant anti-immigrant narratives on um you know by posting those tim pool videos and acting like this was the final verdict on if sweden was had no go zones because of all these refugees or not and it's like tim pool is the is this is the sort of that's the wikileaks approved source for this that's bad news. That really shows that something bad is happening in terms of them stoking these anti-immigration 
But Robbie, he's an unbiased journalist, even though you look at his YouTube channel, it's all just like garbage, bottom of the barrel, uh, right wing talking points like SJWs and Antifa. Speaking of uh, WikiLeaks, um, the reason I wanted to touch on this again is because there have been this series of these vigils for Julian Assange on YouTube, these long, sometimes three-day marathon YouTube live stream broadcasts with various supporters of Julian Assange and supporters of his right uh, to, sp- to speech and his right to be free. But what's what what's notable to me about it is and we've talked about this before, is it appears that his support base has dwindled to a significant degree to the point now where there really aren't that many people on these vigils and the people hosting them, I would argue they're almost unofficial proxies at this point for Assange. That's just speculation, but it appears that he's kind of using female figures to be his his sort of spokespeople at this point, um, like he has done in the past. One of the interesting parts from this vigil that I wanted to bring up is this idea of, you know, MAGAs or Trump supporters turning away from Trump or being disillusioned with him. And while I think for the most part, it hasn't really happened yet, like most Trump supporters are still pretty supportive uh, with the exception of some things that he's done. It was interesting to see Kim.com on this vigil having like a complete meltdown and total buyer's remorse over his support for Trump. And he was openly saying that he he thinks Trump owes WikiLeaks his thanks for getting him elected. And he also said that we got you elected. We tried to help you get you elected because you were going to disrupt the deep state and save like whistleblowers like Julian Assange and all this stuff. And Kim.com was going, you fucking idiot. You fucking asshole, Trump. You're a fucking liar. You're like the rest of them, Trump. And uh, one of the people moderating him on this Assange vigil happened to be a right-wing gateway pundit reporter who was one of the moderators, and she would just didn't know what to say. But I just thought it was interesting to watch Kim.com have all this buyer's remorse and act completely disillusioned with Trump and, you know, we're talking about the guy who tried to stir up all this shit about the Seth Rich conspiracy. To sell his CD. To sell his, like, music and claim that he, like, had contact with Seth Rich and he had proof that he was a leaker his and all this stuff. His name was Robert Paulson. <laughs> Nothing ever materialized. Kim.com didn't show anything. It was really disappointing, you know, because Kim.com had some credibility in my eyes before all this sort of, you know, transpired. But it was just, I just think it was notable to watch someone who... Is sort of a peripheral Trump supporter who's not really a right wing figure who doesn't really not is not really plugged into our social politics, who just believed in this idea that Trump was going to disrupt the deep state, and now he's like really disappointed by him, and he's constantly battling with Trump supporters on his Twitter timeline every day. Yeah, because he's been affected by quote unquote deep state politics. He's kind of living in exile, kind of because he's you know he founded Mega Upload and then he was persecuted and so he's kind of living in New Zealand. I don't know what will happen if he comes back to the US. So he has like a personal vendetta, let's just say, just like Julian Assange. And I think that that's why he really threw his weight behind this whole movement because he's been persecuted by the US yeah. government. So he had an agenda, you think that Of course. He just poured his faith into yeah. someone that seemed like he was going to be a And I don't want to give him too much credit cuz I actually don't know his personal ideology. He very well could be like more alt-right leaning, but I mean at least he does have the fortitude because i was going to say how could these people reconcile the fact that trump 
and his administration have actually been extremely anti-WikiLeaks. Like Pompeo, yeah. and a lot of these people have come out on a limb and exactly. said the most extreme rhetoric about exactly. persecuting Julian Assange and criminalizing yeah. his actions. So, I mean, thank God that someone like Kim.com finally was able to kind of connect that dot and be like, wait a minute, um, Trump is actually really fucked up when it comes to Julian Assange. Why are all these Trump supporters supporting him? Or I mean, sorry, why are all these people who claim that they're like Trump supporters all involved in like Julian Assange advocacy work? Doesn't that kind of contradict each other? Well, it's a very fascinating turn of events. I was talking to Whitney Webb, a uh, collaborator on an article. She she did like 90% of the work on Mint Press News um, called Pro-Trump Conspiracy Monger QAnon Calls for Regime Change in Iran. Basically, the article is about how this figure on 4chan, this anonymous figure who claims he has Q clearance or something, which is some ultra high classified clearance, and he's close to Trump, has now been advocating for regime change in Iran on his postings. Well, the reason why I think it's notable, especially right now, is because it just took a drastic turn into promoting Iranian regime change in, in its recent postings. And it sort of coincided with Secretary of State Pompeo also promoting regime change on Twitter and a bunch of other Trump officials also openly supporting Iranian regime change. And I made a joke on Twitter and said something like, it almost seems like, you know, Pompeo and QAnon are, are in the same room, like tweeting together or something. Because it seemed like their promotion of Iranian regime change was like coming out right at the same time. It was really strange. The Department of State, you have to remember, has, is also in control of the BBG, which runs Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. And now Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty are openly running like domestic propaganda about our politics. They're smearing Glenn Greenwald for going on Russia Today. Just some weird shit happening at the State Department. Makes me think Pompeo is more clever than people give him credit for that maybe, I mean, I don't know if you remember this, Abby, that he actually did a press conference right when he got in the Trump administration saying WikiLeaks is a domestic intelligence agency, like enemy or something. Mm -hmm. And he quoted... Uh, quotes from The Intercept. And I was like, wow, that's kind of like a weird, interesting strategy to to try to create little infighting between Intercept and WikiLeaks. Openly so. So anyways, uh, what's happening with Iran right now in the Trump administration is uh, from Low Blog from July 9th, they have an article up about how Trump is trying to negotiate with and trying to basically intimidate OPEC into cutting Iran out completely from their organization. And Low Blog's article starts with, quote, the Trump administration has gone nuclear and reportedly demanding that all of Iran's current oil consumers completely eliminate imports of Iranian imports by November 4th. This comes in the wake of the OPEC meeting in which apparently under pressure from Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and the United States in particular, its members agreed to a modest increase in oil production beginning next month. Russia has also indicated that it favors an increase in its own production. So what we're trying to do is some kind of roundabout sanction where we're trying to stop other countries from buying Iranian oil without like an official sanction. Like Trump is just trying to do some like art of the deal bullshit by intimidating OPEC. So that's happening right now. Iran responded. This is actually from Radio Free Liberty. Uh, it says a top Iranian official has vowed that Tehran will sell as much oil as possible, even as he acknowledged the new looming U.S. sanctions that will hurt Iran's economy. Vice President Isak Jahaguri 
also said on July 10th that Washington was trying to stop Iran's petrochemical and steel industries, its copper exports, and disrupt its ports. We'll make Americans understand this year that they cannot stop Iranian oil sales, he was quoted as saying by the FARS news agency. Oil experts are a major source of hard currency for Iran, which is a member of the OPEC oil cartel. Um, and that's from, that's from RFERL uh, from a couple weeks ago. There's definitely some movements happening with, just in terms of economic warfare with Iran right now between the United States. And what the United States is trying to do is trying to get other world, powerful world players to get on our side and similarly create situations where Iran will be marginalized in terms of their oil exports, um, which will hurt their economy. I mean, it's not directly a sanction. Again, it's kind of almost more fucked up than a sanction in a way. Mm-hmm. And from Low Blog on July 5th, 2008, they're talking about just, and the article's actually titled, uh, The Battle for Iran Policy or Regime Change. So this article is done as written by James M. Dorsey, and it just sort of goes through all these different things that have been happening recently, just sort of sift through if these are movements to do regime change or if it's something else happening. In a series of tweets recently, um, Pompeo was basically you know, openly supporting the Iranian protesters. And he said, quote, Iran's corrupt regime is wasting the country's resources on Assad, Hezbollah, Hamas, and Houthis while Iranians struggle. So he's like trying to tap into what's supposedly a something that the Iranian people have a problem with in the, against the Iranian government. And there was also these recent protests that they were saying, um, the protesters on the streets were saying, down with Hamas, down with Palestine. And I was kind of watching that thinking like, is this actually what they're saying? Is this an astroturf protest? I mean, if it's a real protest, how big is it? It's like mm-hmm. all that context was sort of purposely you know, missing because it seemed like the Trump administration was trying to piggyback on that. Yeah, and we forgot to talk about MEK funding Giuliani and Giuliani hinting to how, you know, in a year, like the MEK will be oh, yeah. victorious mm-hmm. in Iran and the MEK is in a is just a notorious CIA Mossad operation who just, it's a very fringe group that just funnels millions of dollars in all of these congressmen and senators in the U S to be proponents for it and speak on their behalf. And so they Mm -hmm. keep trying to utilize this weird fringe group in Iran to overthrow their government. And so Giuliani hinted to that. I don't know if Pompeo has said anything about the MEK or Trump well, here, here's what's interesting. It says from the low blog article, you mind if I quote it for a second? Mm-hmm. It says, um, quote, a participant before joining the Trump administration, Bolton this year, stayed away from an annual gathering of the MEK oh, okay. in Paris of the Mujahideen's Ekalk. But he was going continuously before he got in the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. And then they go on to say it's a controversially running opposition group that's since been dropped from the U.S., blah, blah, blah. There is widespread doubt that the Mujahideen al-Khulk that advocates the armed overthrow of the Iranian regime commands popular support in Iran. Of course, we already know that. That did not stop President Trump's personal lawyer, Rudolf Giuliani, and former House of Representatives Speaker and Trump ally, Newt Gingrich, from attending alongside former U.S. officials, former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and European politicians. The U.S. State Department said that the Americans were not representing the administration. Which is hilarious because Rudy Giuliani is constantly acting like he's Trump's spokesperson on TV right now, as I was saying earlier. And Newt Gingrich actually helped write Trump's national security strategy document that came out that Christmas surprise 
document we talked about months ago. The Korea one? Yeah, Newt Gingrich has been instrumental. Trump even said, watch Sean Hannity tonight at 9 o'clock once a few weeks or months ago, and it was in a long interview with Newt Gingrich. There's definitely a relationship there beyond just this unofficial bullshit they're trying to spin here. Um, But this happened like a couple weeks ago. This Rudy Giuliani, Newt Gingrich, MEK thing was a couple weeks ago, literally. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, I can't believe Stephen Harper was there. I know. Is that weird? Yeah. Yeah. I, it was funny. I was able to confront Howard Dean on breaking the set. He never came on RT again, but he thought it was just going to be like a softball interview. And I just like immediately confronted him about why he accepts money so from good. the terrorist organization, Mujahideen Al-Khulk. And he was like, they're not a terrorist organization. <laughs> yeah. He, he was like, no, they're not a terrorist organization. They're removed from the, he, but he actually acknowledged they were removed from the list. Yeah. It's like, no, they just yeah. assassinate scientists yeah. and you know. I loved how he had to acknowledge though that they used to be <laughs> on your show. So crazy to me. So the article continues. Oh, and this is actually what Rudy Giuliani said live in front of the MEK. This is great. This is two weeks ago, mind you. While all this other shit's happening with OPEC and all these movements against Iran, Rudy Giuliani said, this president does not intend to turn his back on freedom fighters. When the greatest economic power stops doing business with you, then you collapse. And, that's, and the sanctions will become greater and greater and greater, Giuliani told the rally. The article continues with something very interesting that I didn't even hear about in the news, Abby, and this is crazy. Mm. Listen to this. In a mysterious twist, German, Belgian, and French authorities arrested an Iranian diplomat, a couple of Iranian descent, and three suspected accomplices on suspicions of planning to bomb the Mujahideen's Paris rally. So the MEK actually, like, apparently this is what was in the news that's totally under the radar, didn't hear anything about this until today when we were looking up uh, stuff for this episode, that the MEK, apparently the police, foiled an attack against their rally in Paris that Rudy Giuliani and Newt Gingrich were speaking at. Um, and it can, the article continues, it was not clear why Iran would want to jeopardize Rouhani's trip as well as international support for the nuclear deal. Because remember, Europe is still in the nuclear deal. Right. Europe is still in the nuclear deal. Right. This is very interesting that this happened. It is not clear why Iran would want to jeopardize Rouhani's trip as well as international support for the nuclear deal by bombing a group that has a little domestic support unless Iranian hardliners saw it as a way of further weakening the reformist president. So this author is just throwing out a speculation that, you know, unless it was just some like other Iranian hardliners who wanted to do this. Or it could have been them. The MEK themselves. The MEK does terrorist attacks all over the place. I mean, we've known this. So this is a, a quote by Foreign Minister Ayavid Zarif uh, from Iran. He tweeted, quote, How convenient. Just as we embark on a presidential visit to Europe, an alleged Iranian operation and its, quote, plotters arrested, Iran unequivocally condemns all violence and terror anywhere and is ready to work with all concern to uncover what is a sinister false flag oh, ploy. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Yep. Damn. But I mean, just let's just isolate it to Paris. Why would they be allowed to do a rally in Paris and and to begin with? I mean, they're religious. You know, people have described them as a religious cult. It's not like they're not fundamentalist. So that's that's interesting in and of itself. When you're talking about a country that doesn't even allow like Holocaust denial, it's against the law. So why would they allow this group? You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. It's just weird. Um, but this Iranian girl was arrested recently for an Instagram post where she's doing kind of a sexy dance on Instagram. 
definitely being boosted here. From what I understand of Iranian law, it makes sense why she was arrested, but it's definitely being signal boosted here and like widely publicized all over the place, um, sort of piggybacking on all these Trump movements against Iran. So once again, I mean, if there are movements towards another Middle Eastern country like Iran, like war movements, you better believe that a lot of the other media outlets aren't going to like push up against it. You know, they're going to even like BuzzFeed and Vice and stuff, they're going to sort of like grease the skids for it. So like, I just think that's important to remember, like, do not trust or think there's all this resistance against Trump, all, you know, all the things Trump's going to do. You might be very surprised being for a rude awakening. Well, we um, have to do something, right? I'm just joking. That's, <laughs> that's going to be the mantra that we hear yeah, from yeah. all these like little anarcho. Well, as soon as, as if Iran shoots another, I mean, do you remember during the Green Revolution, that one female protester got shot in the neck uh-uh. and died on camera? I mean, if that happened now, I feel like shit would be on. I mean, it could light up really fast now with Trump in power, with all these right. forces sort of breathing down Just Iran's neck. Just having the media replaying that clip over and over again. Can you imagine if yeah. they did that with Razan al-Najjar in Palestine? Nuts. In Gaza, if they just replayed a clip mm-hmm. of her getting executed? And just more examples of, uh, I mean, no, it would be insane. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, yeah. And as Krauthammer says, don't don't let them telegenically yeah. die as much. It doesn't even matter if they quote if they do that, Charles, because the fucking media won't play it anyways. Right. So Charles. But back to uh RAP Charles. Um back to the Trump administration breathing down Iran's neck. And this is also this is interesting again, because it does seem like there are forces trying to get Europe to pull out of the deal. Um, Trump administration tries to block $350 million withdrawal from German banks sent to the Iranian government. This is from Press TV, but it was also reported in AP and a bunch of other places. But I'm going to quote the Press TV article. It says, in an interview with German Daily Build, quoted by Reuters, Richard Grinnell expressed Washington's grave concern with regard to Tehran's bid to transfer the money to Iran, saying, we encourage the highest levels of the German government to intervene and stop the plan. On Monday, a German finance minister spokeswoman said the country is examining Iran's request to withdraw the funds in order to satisfy part of its foreign currency needs when fresh U.S. US sanctions against its financial sector take effect. According to a report by Bild, Iran had told the German Financial Supervisory Authority that it needed the cash from the accounts to, quote, to pass on to Iranian citizens who require cash while traveling abroad given their inability to access recognized credit cards, end quote. It's interesting that what's probably happening here, and this is, you know, even the press TV article doesn't like try to make a counter argument to this, but the U.S. seems to think that Iran is trying to come ahead of the new sanctions, get a bunch of money out from European banks before the sanctions take effect, and we're trying to stop them from doing that even before the sanctions take effect. So that's like obviously what the U.S.'s motivation is there, which is just really goes to show that this is heating up and we are just trying to like really kind of come at them from all sides here. It seems more sneaky than anything the Obama administration was doing to Russia, like after Ukraine. To me, it seems way more sneaky and, and sort of deliberate and backhanded. I don't know if it wasn't bad enough that the U.S. ruins this good deal. Um, at Rouhani, when the deal was removed from the U.S., he said, we're absolutely going to continue on the path um, with Europe, you know, with our European allies to carry this deal to the end. So it's just astounding to me 
that Trump would actually go further than even, you know, destroying it from the U.S. perspective to actually try to completely undermine it from all the other sides. And and probably he's threatening Germany. If you don't do this, then we'll do that. I mean, it's just nuts. It's just nuts to me that they're, yeah, like all of these power plays happening with our European quote unquote allies to try to disrupt this negotiations. And also, this is another interesting thing when you throw this into the mix, is that Netanyahu is trying to play Putin against Iran by appealing to both Putin and Trump. And this is from July 10th. That's smart. Yeah, this is from the Jerusalem Post from July 10th. Headline, Iran must exit all of Syria, Netanyahu tells Putin's envoys before trip. What about you? Yeah. You want to exit from Syria too yeah. or not? So, and this actually, this came out, around the same time where other articles came out saying that there's talk uh, sources in, inside Netanyahu's administration and the U.S. government are saying that the Trump-Putin summit that's coming up at the White House is going to be apparently a lot about Iran. And Netanyahu is trying to get both of them to basically turn against Iran and kick them out of Syria. I thought it was going to be in Helsinki. Oh, the Trump-Putin uh, meeting? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you might be right. Okay. I mean, I, I, would, did I just say the White House? Yeah. <laughs> that would be actually really funny if it was at the White House. Yeah. Came to the oh, White my House. God, people would be <laughs> shit a brick if that happened. No way. Yeah, what am I thinking? The article goes on to say, Prime Minister Netanyahu met two Russian officials in his office Tuesday and told them Iran must leave all of Syria just hours before flying to Moscow on Wednesday in a meeting with the Russian President Vladimir Putin. So with all of these underhanded little tactics going on and trying to you know, undermine the deal with Europe. What do you think is going to happen? They're just going to keep picking away at it. I mean, I think that there's definitely some kind of coordinated effort being made right now to basically realize the prize, the -hmm. last part of the PNAC plan. And also like the, just the fact that Trump's even talking about space force. I mean, just almost too perfect. I'm not saying that PNAC rules everything around me, but (laughs) you really do have to assume that, in a large way, that was a really good intellectual encapsulation and understanding of what the military industrial complex would really desire for their future of their, all of their companies. You know, I mean, just the company, the, if you're just talking about the defense companies. Well, I think so, PNAC does rule everything around us because the new Supreme Court nominee is a Bush right hand yeah, man. Yeah. And this is just, it just keeps coming back from Giuliani to this guy now. It is really strange. Oh, and then also, Speaking of PNAC, I mean, the Gatestone Institute, um, I think it's actually called the Gaston Institute or something. It's I don't know if it's actually European, but it's on the board is James Woolsey and John Bolton. They're an anti-Muslim think tank, um, according to all these, you know, credible media outlets. And they prop up this like weird sort of like alt-right European guy named Geert Wilders. He's like a shrill, like anti-Muslim, like Pamela Geller in Europe. They're really like firing on all cylinders still and trying to demonize Muslims, trying to sell weapons and trying to egg on regime change with Iran. And it would be really interesting to see what happens. Bill Crystal and all these other people who claim they hate Trump, they're not going to be able to resist the temptation to go after Iran. No, you still see Bill Crystal talk about it. That's like the one thing that he agrees every time Trump people say stuff about Iran. Mm-hmm. He's just like, yeah, great. Another bipartisan push for endless war. So we have to just push back constantly against this rhetoric and agitprop coming at us from all sides because it's going to come from all sides, the liberal establishment and the Trump administration, because they all really ultimately want that prize out of the way. Yeah. 
And I could see another of these color revolutions could be at least in part CIA engineered. I could see one at least significantly weakening the Iranian government, but it's going to be a lot more difficult, I think, to wage that kind of war even on Iran. If they're going to try to overthrow their government with MEK or something crazy like that, expect every MAGA alt-right person under the sun to support the regime change. Oh my God, dude. I just looked up Helsinki, Putin. You should see these articles. Washington Post, Putin is about to con Trump in Helsinki. Here's how. Time Magazine, no matter what happens in Helsinki, Putin has already won. What the fuck? And it just goes on and on. God damn. I mean, it is stuff like that where you do, you kind of wonder, like, I could understand how all these people out there do think there's some kind of like deep state against Trump thing when you just see the media coverage like that constantly bombardment of it. But what is that really? I mean, it's not the deep state, you know, the media, the, the fucking neoliberal like media stuff, it's not the deep state, but it is strange. You were talking about how during the Obama administration, the quote unquote liberal media, this punditry class, this blob of neoliberalism in D.C. behind all these publications, they were very soft on Obama. They never really criticized him about anything. It was just mostly like kind of reactionary stuff against Fox News and like the conservatives who had the majority in his latter half power plays between them. And it was never really like hard critique of Obama or his policies. And so when Trump gets in to have the entire media establishment just flip against Trump. Yeah. Of course, people are going to think that. I mean, how could it how could you not think that? Well, you just said something that made me realize that the media did start to sort of tilt against Obama, like kind of around when Ukraine happened. And then he like pulled the red line thing in Syria. I feel like that was when a little bit of a shift happened kind of around the same time the neocons did. Yeah, like they were they were criticizing him from again, like from a military perspective, being yeah. like, oh, he's too weak militarily. Yeah. But that was like the only criticism that I remember, really. Yeah. So if you really if you really are a believer in that idea that the deep state's going against Trump and that's a signal of it, take that chronology back be, before the election and take it back even a year into Obama's president, like last year of Obama's presidency, and you'll sort of see a similar flavor of them really being like, why is Obama being so weak on Russia? You know, like Chuck Todd on like MSNBC. I mean, I mean, on NBC was like constantly talking like that about Obama. Not so much like the more like Rachel Maddow's and the Joanne Reeds, but a lot of the more like liberal establishment people were. So now I'm just completely going off on a tangent, but yeah, no, it's it's nuts. Well, we're gonna we're gonna do another podcast soon, going over the Mexican elections, going over all the Supreme Court stuff. So stay tuned for that. But uh, yeah, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. And if you have not already donated to our Patreon page, please consider donating at patreon.com slash Radio. We could really use your support, and we really appreciate all the support from all the listeners who have donated so far. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, guys. We really appreciate your support. Bye.